Welcome to the Kate Languages podcast. I'm your host, Kate Clifton. I'm a former MFL teacher who left the classroom in 2017 to set off on my own adventure. Since then, I've developed my passion for helping teachers through creating time-saving teaching resources, delivering language lessons and CPD to languages teachers, and of course, through this podcast. I've had some wonderful feedback from teachers about how my work is helping them with their everyday teaching, and I love connecting with teachers from all over the world. To get in touch, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. I'm at Kate Languages on both, or you can email me through my website, katelanguages.co.uk. But for now, grab a cuppa, although maybe not if you're listening in the car. Sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of the Kate Languages podcast. how are you? Welcome to another episode of the Kate Languages podcast. This is season six, episode two. And today I am chatting to Emily Armstrong and we're going to be talking about teacher well-being. Now, I just need to say right now, if you think that teacher well-being is doing a bit of yoga in the staff room after school, then you're going to be disappointed by this episode. (laughs) We're going to be talking about proper teacher well-being, what it really, really is and probably quite a lot of what it is not, as in it's not yoga. So Emily, hi, it's so lovely to be able to chat to you. We've kind of connected a bit on social media and it's just really, really great to have you here and be able to chat to you uh, over Zoom, maybe one day in real life, but um, yeah, it's brilliant. So how are you doing? I'm really well, thank you. It's really nice to be here and like I say, meet you uh, virtually. Brilliant. Okay, so if you could just kind of tell everybody a bit about yourself, you know, what's your background? I know you have been a teacher yourself, so um, yeah, if you tell everyone a bit about yourself, please. Yeah, of course. So I've been in education for over 10 years now. It's gone really, really quickly, actually. I can't believe it's been that long. But I trained back in, when would it have been, 2014 and kind of progressed my way up quite quickly in the teaching world. So I was head sort of eight or nine years in. Absolutely loved it, but it didn't help me to help the amount of teachers that I wanted to support because for me, teaching and learning has always been something that I've been really passionate about and also teacher well-being as well, as, as you know. So I left my headship back in the summer, so last year, and now I have two jobs really. So I help teachers every single day in schools. So I coach teachers within the classroom and then privately I coach teachers one-to-one on teacher well-being and like you say real well-being not (laughs) the cakes in the staff room type of well-being that sometimes we're used to so that's me so it's been a bit of a whirlwind 10 years I do miss being in the classroom but I absolutely love what I do now yeah it's kind of similar to me in some ways in that you've moved out of the classroom into a role where you are working with teachers and helping teachers I think um yeah that's absolutely fantastic so as we've mentioned a couple of times the concept of real teacher well-being so what do what do we mean by that as you know we both said it's not yoga it's not cakes in the staff room so what is it first and foremost it's about giving people strategies I think we all work so hard don't mean teaching is such a difficult profession and and actually it's lovely to have the cakes in the staff room and the thank yous but really real teacher well-being is about having the things that we need the the strategies we can use when things get tough or or even to actually progress through things if we want to I know lots of teachers are very ambitious so the other side of it is actually helping 
ourselves to get where we want to be within our teaching career as well. So there's lots and lots of kind of facets to it, really. But I would definitely say it's about strategy. And for me personally, the things that have helped me deal with all of the challenges that I have had in my time in education have always been very practical. And like I say, the uh, cakes in the staff room are lovely, (laughs) but they're not there when you're in the meeting with a challenging parent or when you've got so much work on your plate that you just can't manage it. So yeah, I would say it's very much strategy and and practicality. Okay, so can you give any examples of the types of strategies that you talk to teachers about? Let's focus first on, yeah, just kind of dealing with that like everyday workload and overwhelm and like you say, difficult conversations with parents or management. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think probably workload is is huge for everybody isn't it I think there's so many different narratives out there we see so many tips on social media and across the teaching world all to do with workload management but I think it's really about doing what's right for you so you'll see lots of people in schools saying right everybody has to leave by 3 30 and that's one of their well-being strategies well for me it's not really about that it's more about doing what works for you so if you want to for example stay on a Monday and work late and then have, you know, Tuesday, maybe a little bit later, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you leave a bit earlier. If that works for you, depending on your situation, then then really that's that's the type of things that we want to get to. There's plenty of to-do lists and things online, but I feel it goes deeper than that with workload. I think it's about managing your energy as well. So knowing when you work best, like for me, I don't know about yourself, but I'm a really early, I'm an early bird. So for me, anything past like, are you not <laughs> anything past? I'm just shaking my head. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anything past sort of seven, eight o'clock at night, there's no point me even working. So for workload, it's really knowing yourself. I think in terms of things like assertiveness and being in, like we said, those challenging situations, I think that is very much about knowing how to speak your truth and, and know the things that are really important to you and having all of those little strategies you can draw on if you really need to set some boundaries with a person or really get a message across so you're not swayed into things like people pleasing there's so much to it I think it's very exciting it's exciting when you get to understand what that true well-being is for you and see the benefits of it really yeah I think that's so important and you know what I feel like I've not heard that many people talking about it from such a kind of personal perspective you know like you were saying like quite often it'll be you know I send emails on my email list and I get quite a lot of auto responses and people saying it may take three to five working days to respond to this email or I'm out of the office or we don't respond to emails on weekends and things like that and I love getting those responses I have to say they are really really good but I do think that's really interesting because I often work on Sundays for example because that's the way it kind of fits in with my life I mean you know doing what I do and you as well I guess you're you know we kind of we're quite lucky in that we can choose a bit more when we work but then I don't have the choice either because I you know have to get my son up and take him off to preschool and things like that in the morning so yeah I'm just kind of bleary eyed driving my car but then yeah so sorry we're actually recording this in in the evening (laughs) I'm fresher I'm quite good in the evenings actually but yeah so I think but yeah I really like that I like that idea that it's not just about saying, right, everybody has to be home, you know, leaving the school at half past three. Because what that might mean for quite a lot of people, I don't know if you find this as well, is if you're told that you have to leave at half past three, you might end up just taking a mountain of work home with you. And then it just kind of sits there on your kitchen table, staring at you going, haha, you've got to do me this evening. And, you know, actually people, some people would rather stay at school and, you know, finish off their work after school. 
You mentioned assertiveness, and I think this is really, really important as well. So if you're talking to teachers on a one-to-one basis and, you know, coaching them and sort of saying, okay, you know yourself, if you want to stay at school later or if you want to leave earlier because you know that that suits you or if you want to get there earlier, blah, 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 you know, whatever it is that might suit the teacher. If it goes against the school policies, for example, how how do you help people with that? And what kind of tips can you give people who want to say, I actually want to stay later than 3.30. Please don't make me leave at 3.30. I think that's a really interesting point, actually. And I think the other side of well-being obviously comes from the school. So I think there's kind of two aspects to it, really. There's that individual approach and then there's the whole school approach. So ideally, you're in a school that will respect the ways that you want to work. And that's great. If maybe you come across something that's a bit of a clash in terms of your own boundaries and the way that, that you want to work and manage your workload, I think it's about as much as we possibly can, being vocal about these things because people are very keen and very quick to say, you know, I was working all all night last night and working really hard, et cetera, et cetera. But do we ever have those conversations about, okay, so what are the solutions to this? And I think it's up to leaders and not necessarily senior leadership. If you're a wellbeing leader within your school, for example, a really important conversation to have with your staff is how do you work and how can we accommodate that? How can we incorporate that into our wellbeing policy? We see so many things in in policies about certain sort of initiatives and things, but it is very much about people finding that voice and having these conversations and actually talking about the fact that, yeah, they do work on a Friday night until eight, nine o'clock. And that's okay because then they can have the weekend off. That's how they want to work. Or, you know, they don't work Tuesdays and Wednesday evenings. They finish early because they've got to take their children to a football match and they want to do that. So I think there's a bit of a stigma around working weekends or working evenings and as soon as we hear somebody say that it's like whoa that's not okay but actually if somebody's choosing to do that if their workload in general they're able to manage and they're choosing to do that because they don't want to work at other points when they want to spend time with family or do things they really value I think we need to normalize that that's okay it's not always that there's far too much work and we can't we know there's loads of work in teaching but sometimes I feel that people feel scared to actually say yeah I am going to work on a Sunday because that's what works best for me yeah I always used to do that so I would never work on a Saturday that was always my thing of like if I work on Saturday I'll also work on Sunday but if I completely take the whole day off on Saturday for myself you know spend time with my friends and family and then work on a Sunday and again like I was just saying I still work on a Sunday quite often because on a Sunday I automatically start thinking about the week ahead And if I don't sit down with my diary and just checking a few things and just, you know, double checking, I know what's coming up for the week. I mean, it might even just be half an hour. But if I don't do that on a Sunday, I then start to feel stressed about the week ahead. So, yeah, I love that. I love supporting people to be able to say this is what I want to do and when I want to do it. Do you find sometimes in schools that there's a bit of a culture of people almost competing to be like, oh, I worked so hard. or I did five hours work yesterday evening. Like, oh, I got home at four and I worked solidly till nine o'clock. I didn't even have time to eat my dinner or whatever. Do you come across that kind of attitude in school sometimes? I have done in the past. Yeah, probably not currently, but I definitely have been in schools in the past where that has been the case. And I think I think it's very different and it's sometimes hard to then recognise somebody who genuinely is working too much and is really struggling because I think you're exactly right. And people feel there's a real guilt, isn't there? If you haven't worked on a Sunday because you've decided to have the weekend off and that's great, that's fine. 
to hear somebody say they were, then I remember it back at the as a teacher thinking, oh my goodness, I should have worked yesterday. Why didn't I work? And you start to compare yourself, definitely. And I think it's almost become the norm for people to associate teaching with a high workload. Yes, we have a huge workload in teaching, but it's also okay to take the time and to work for you as well. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny because I thought I knew what I was letting myself in for when I became a teacher because I've talked about this before, but I have four parents, a mum and a stepdad and a dad and a stepmom, and three of my four parents were teachers. And my mum, who I lived with the most, was a languages teacher as well. So I, I thought I knew what I was letting myself in for because she would do marking in the evenings and I knew that she worked outside of school and I remember like my sister and I used to do athletics and she would sit in the car and mark books while we were doing athletics but even she said but my sister became a teacher as is still a teacher but when we became teachers I think she was quite surprised by how different the workload was for her generation they prepared their lessons and they did their work and they marked their books and they were trusted to do it And she really noticed when my sister and I became teachers that it felt like we were constantly looking over our shoulders. We were constantly worried about who was going to come in and who was going to check it. And, you know, looming Ofsted might come at some point, which they hardly ever do in my experience (laughs) and all that kind of thing. And I just, yeah. And the thing is, I've been out of the classroom now for seven years. From what I see on social media, I would like to think it's got a bit better again. But what's your feeling about that? Do you think... Part of the issue is still that teachers are just not allowed to get on with the teaching and learning and not necessarily trusted to just get on with what they know they can do really well. I think that really depends on leadership. And I think having been in that position as as a head as well, I think it's very easy as a leader to slip into that kind of micromanaging and then when that happens, obviously then people do feel the pressure. They feel like they're not trusted. They can't, they don't have that autonomy. And obviously that that starts right from the top. There's a lot of pressure at all levels. And I think that can easily filter down. So I know as a leader, something I really had to keep a check on was, okay, I'm not going to micromanage this as much as my first instinct at times was, I'm either going to do that for people or, which I was awful at doing as well, I had to really work on that or making sure I knew exactly what was going on in every aspect of everybody's classroom. It was tempting at times to just feel like I had to be like that. But when you've got a good team, which I always had, you have to kind of take a step back. And I think that's when you see the real progression in teachers' development as well, because they feel like they're trusted. They can try things out. I mean, there's a huge, huge shift that's coming, I think, and I hope around teachers being able to make mistakes in the classroom and actually ditching that judgment culture. And that's something I'm really passionate about as well, because I think if you don't feel trusted and you feel like somebody's looking over your shoulder, you're not going to want to try these things out that you know are going to have a huge impact, could have a massive impact in your classroom because you feel like if you make a mistake, you're not able to do that. So I think good, strong leaders who allow their staff to be trusted, who lead on the things they need to lead on and who allow them to you know, kind of go their own way a little bit, it really does have a massive effect on on the team and on everybody's well-being. Do you know, that's so amazing. I almost actually feel a little bit emotional listening to you talking about that because it suddenly kind of hit me like, yes, that's the thing. And what is weird, what is ironic is the amount, especially more and more now, I would say that we really celebrate failure and mistakes amongst children. So, you know, we, there's a whole, you know, growth mindset and all this kind of stuff about like, you have to make mistakes to learn and to improve. 
and teach us. Oh my God. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. That is so true. That is so true. You're not allowed to make a mistake. Yeah. It is. And I think it's something I'm so passionate about. And actually, when I reflect back on the amount of pressure that I put on myself in the classroom to do everything perfectly, yeah, I would spend my mornings, days saying to my children, oh, you can make mistakes. We learn from mistakes, doing all of our first attempted, all of those acronyms and everything like that, that I was saying. And actually to myself, I wasn't giving myself the break. I was coming home and beating myself up because, you know, one child hadn't got a question right in maths that day. And it really, I think when you start to, as a teacher, see failures as points of growth and learning points it does feel rubbish at the time you know if you do something you feel like doing something wrong or a lesson observation or whatever goes wrong it does feel rubbish for a bit but I think you always learn from those points and the more we can cultivate that culture within our schools the more that teachers will feel that they're able to develop and and do what's right for their children and become the amazing teachers that that we know they are and even better yeah that's so interesting and I think coming from a secondary perspective as well kind of encouraging kids to make mistakes but also to allow their teachers to make mistakes I think the older children get the more they can see if the teacher you know I'm just thinking from a languages perspective as well like quite often you don't know the vocab or you might get the grammar a bit wrong and I still like I I teach teachers now and I still just think oh if I've you know if I've accidentally said something wrong or if I've got a bit confused like oh, today I couldn't remember if it was Nuevo York or Nueva York because I just couldn't remember. And I just double-checked it and I was like, oh, yeah, it's Nueva York. And just, yeah, just things like that that I still <laughs> get really nervous. I'm like, oh, they're going to think I don't speak the language or they're going to think I don't know anything. And, da, da, da. and as much as I used to say, like, do you know all the words in English? No. So I can't know all the words in French or whatever. But you still have, yeah, you have that kind of nagging feeling in the back of your head, like I need to be the perfect person and I need to know everything and I need to get it all right. So, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's a bit of a revelation. Like I say, I feel slightly emotional thinking about that because it is so deep rooted in you. And I think maybe, I don't want to generalize, but I think quite a lot of teachers are perfectionists a little bit, maybe. Yeah, definitely. And I think actually, as much as we have amazing people come into our profession, at times they're the worst people to come into the profession (laughs) because they are the people. We are the people who are so prone to perfectionism. And I think it's probably (laughs) one of the careers that brings that out the most in people. And actually, when you think about it, there's there's no, it's a bit cliche, it's a bit cheesy, but there really isn't such thing as perfect. You could come to me with the most what you think is the most amazing lesson that you spent hours on. And I could disagree. I could say, well, I don't agree with that. I don't think it is. And actually, there's no concrete behind perfect. And I think with teachers, it's very easy to constantly be striving for that that next step and that next, you know, that perfect. And, and it is instilled in us really from teacher training, isn't it? Because from day one, we're scrutinized and, and we're always constantly reflecting. And that's great. That's brilliant as part of our profession. But it really does lend itself to perfectionism as well, which can be in terms of procrastination, managing a workload, like perfectionism is a killer of productivity, a huge killer. Absolutely. Is that something that you find quite a lot then with teachers and that's something like mindset wise that you really need to work on with people? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say there's, there aren't many teachers who come to me who don't have issues with perfectionism. And I think it's okay to have that if you know, if it doesn't hold you back, but when it's holding people back from either because people feel so overwhelmed because they're spending so much time on on the small stuff and they're not really getting anywhere 
or because they're waiting to be at a perfect point in their career before they try and progress. There's so much behind that. And actually, when people start to realize, actually, you can be like 90% with a piece of work and it still be brilliant. I don't know about you, but how many times have you labored over something in your teaching career thinking, oh, I need to be perfect, sent it off, and you've never heard back from anybody. <laughs> you've never heard if it's if it's okay, if it's not. But I think we are programmed as teachers to be like that. But once you get used to that shift that it doesn't have to be 100% to actually for you to take that action, that is a huge, huge mindset shift then. Yeah, or you spend hours preparing like one task for a lesson that takes five minutes and then you're like... <laughs> Oh, yeah, I spent a really long time preparing that and then it's just done. And you're like, oh my gosh. And actually, so a couple of things I was just thinking when you were saying that. First of all, I think it's in one of my Q&A episodes. I had a question from somebody that was along those lines. Can't remember exactly what the question was, but I just remember that my response was basically good is good enough. Like good is actually brilliant. Like you don't need to be better than good. And talking about the same kind of thing, procrastination, I will have a think about which episode that was and I'll pop it in the show notes. Yeah. And also, I mean, I don't think I am a perfectionist anymore. And again, with this podcast, if you listen to my first episode, <laughs> my first ever, it was one of these things that I had in the back of my mind. I thought it'd be really fun to do a podcast. And I just kept overthinking it and overthinking it. And, I, and then I was just like, I'm just going to record it. And it took me like five seasons to even get it professionally edited and produced. And yeah, I think for the first season, I didn't even bother with a jingle, like, you know, like music at the beginning or anything. I just was like, I'm just going to talk into my phone and I'm going to upload it. But I think if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be doing it now. And I love, you know, I'm really enjoying it. It's actually a really, really important part of my work now. So yeah, but it is, it, it is really hard. And I do sometimes wonder if social media has made it a bit worse because people see these perfect Instagram classrooms or, you know, people upload like screenshots, uh, PowerPoints and stuff that they've done or worksheets and things. And you just think, oh gosh, if my lesson doesn't look like that, or if my PowerPoint doesn't look like that, I'm not doing as good a job. But um, yeah, I think you're right. And I think Instagram is amazing. Social media is amazing for teachers as a point of connection, as something to showcase ideas and resources. But Definitely. It's the same as in general life, isn't it? When you log on a weekend, when you're having a lazy weekend doing nothing, you see somebody that's there living their best life, probably with that caption as well on there. Running a marathon. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Running a marathon when you're just sat there watching TV. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's the same, really. I think if you've had a really awful day as a teacher and then you log on to social media and you see somebody that's managed to perfect their lesson calm within an inch of its life it, it doesn't help and I think that's a really good point actually as well about all the things we say around social media and kind of limiting that a little bit I think that's really important and following people who who have the same values as you who actually make you feel good about education and teaching rather than you logging on and just feeling inadequate. I think that's really important for, for teachers as well. Yeah, definitely. You're doing amazing work and hopefully there's, there are more people like you out there who, you know, who are doing all this amazing work and yet teachers are still quitting a lot. So yeah, I think quite often teachers are quitting just because, yeah, just they're getting over. It's not because they don't love teaching anymore. And I get messages from people because obviously they know that I have left teaching I'm doing other stuff now and I get messages from people who are just saying like oh I'm just like I'm so close to just walking out I've just you know had enough 
And I feel like I've made it my life's work now to try and basically make teachers' lives easier by, you know, through my resources and my CPD and all that kind of stuff. Like, that's what I want to do uh, with my life. But yeah, what, what do you think about, you know, teachers who are quitting when they actually don't want to be quitting and how we can stop it, how we can stop all this happening? Because it's so sad. It is. It's really sad. And I think, I think it's really, there's so much to this. I think it's really sad that people are leaving the profession. Definitely. There are so many reasons why. So many reasons. And for some people, it absolutely will be the right thing. I'm not here to tell anybody who who's made that decision not to, because I think for some people, they decide that it's not, you know, everything that's going on in education is not for them or just that they've worked in education for five, 10 years and, and this, they want to do something different and that's fine. But I think there are lots of teachers who, for one reason or another, still love teaching and don't want to leave, but almost feel like it's their only option. And I think there's lots of reasons and actually some reasons that we don't always talk about. So obviously workload is a huge reason. And when people weigh up the fact that they're spending so much time on work rather than their, their families and, and their friends or the things they want to do, then, then that's obviously one of the huge factors behind it. So first and foremost, in, in that sense, I think schools can do a lot to support people with managing their workload. Individuals can take action to make sure they're managing their workload in the best way they possibly can. We spoke previously about looking at the way that you could be most productive and you might decide after doing that, that, you know, it's still not for you and, and that's fine. But I think there's another reason that a lot of people leave that people really aren't talking about. And that is because people get to a point where they, their next steps are scary for them. So actually they get quite overwhelmed. So for example, they've been teaching for however many years. I don't like to put a number on it either. Cause I don't think that you can really put a number on how many years you should be teaching before you can be ready to progress but okay mm. lots of people think they want more maybe they want to go into leadership maybe they want to support others with teaching and learning but because that really pushes them out of their comfort zone they're scared of failure they're scared of taking the leap talking to people about wanting to do that and all of these feelings come into play it feels very overwhelming for them the pressures of daily school are there anyway and actually they feel that they can't really do that they're not good enough and actually, sometimes they think, well, actually, the option I need to leave because I can't progress. I don't want to do that. That's, that's way too scary. There's lots of workload here. I'm not feeling massively happy. So my option is to leave. And that really is where I come in with the clients that I work with, because there are so many things. And we spoke about it right at the beginning about the strategies you can use that make things easier and actually enable you to get to be that teacher or that leader that you want to be. Things that you wouldn't even imagine you would little strategies that can have a massive massive impact there are so many teachers out there with imposter syndrome as well and who feel that they really even when they're in the roles where they feel they want to be they, they don't feel they're worthy of being there so it's really important that we address all of those things as well as supporting those who, who want to leave to make the right decisions but I think it's such a shame that people who want to stay are leaving because they feel they have no other option. So what type of strategies do you do with people to, I, I guess, again, you, you're talking about mindset and not even necessarily, you know, talking about the workload now. Is, is it more like a psychological thing of 
getting in that mindset, getting over the imposter syndrome. Could you give us just like one or two little things that people could do really easily? Well, I don't know how easy it is, but that they could start to do to to get over that sort of imposter syndrome a bit. Uh, <clears throat> asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's funny you should say that, that really, because the reason I do all of this work is because I've been there. And I think with imposter syndrome, it's really important to recognize that everybody has it. Like even the people who you look up at, I remember being a, a teacher and looking up at leaders and thinking, oh my goodness, like you're amazing. You don't let anything phase you. You're so confident. You make it look so easy. And those people have imposter syndrome pretty much probably on a daily basis, but they're just better at, at managing it and not letting it hold them back. So yeah, absolutely. I think the first step is recognizing it and sort of even with some of my clients, we do things about, it's a bit of a silly thing, but even giving it a bit of a name. <laughs> so you can almost, it's almost there like a bit of an imaginary friend. So you know <laughs> when your imposter syndrome is creeping it, it just helps you to separate it from yourself really, because that voice will be there. When somebody comes to school and says, oh, would you like to do this staff meeting? Your imposter syndrome, whatever it's called, will be there saying, you can't do that. You're not good enough. And if you can separate that and talk yourself around giving yourself a more positive narrative against that, that's really important. We don't talk about imposter syndrome anywhere near enough. I think the other thing I would say, and again, it sometimes feels a little bit cliche, a little bit cheesy, but how you're talking to yourself in general is really important. And I'm not saying like, give yourself a pep talk every morning. Like if, if you want to do that, amazing, <laughs> but you don't have to, but it's about catching yourself when in your head, when you're thinking this teacher's better than me, or I can never do that. It's about catching that mindset and telling yourself, no, I can do that. Something that I tell all of my clients to do when they feel that imposter syndrome creep in is to write down every single reason why you are good enough. So we've all had so many, so many achievements in our past. Like even, even the things that seem very tiny to us, once you start to list them, you start to realize that you have a lot, a lot of strings to your bow. And when you kind of make yourself that, it's almost like a CV really for yourself, you then realize that you can do what you want to do. And I think it's about giving yourself that evidence to show that. So yeah, there's a few things there. Imposter syndrome is really complex, but I think it is really important to to recognize it and and to talk about it because it is a bit of a taboo with teachers. You don't hear anybody in the staff room saying, oh, I feel like I've got real imposter syndrome today. Like it just doesn't, people talk about workload and things like that, but they don't talk about, I felt like an imposter this morning when I was standing in front of my new club. Like it just doesn't happen. So the more we can talk about it, and this is why I'm really glad I'm talking about it with you here because it's really important. Yeah, it really is. And again, thinking about the teachers who I work with, the ones I do language lessons with, are in a situation where they are fluent, you know, they've got a degree in one or two languages, at least. They might be native speakers of one language. And then their school suddenly say, oh, by the way, next year you're going to be teaching year seven Spanish. And they say, but I don't speak Spanish. And they say, oh, you'll be fine. You speak French, you'll be all right. And that's really interesting thinking from an imposter syndrome perspective. I mean, it's hard enough when you speak a language fluently or you are a native speaker of a language, but to have that extra stress and pressure of not actually feeling that confident in your subject. And it's, you know, it's not just languages teacher. I mean, I know in primary schools as well, to go, to go back to languages, I know a lot of teachers in primary schools, when they have to teach languages, get that feeling as well. And they feel really insecure about like, I don't really know the language very well. Like, you know, so from a subject knowledge perspective, to start with and then yes as you know 
layers and layers and layers, aren't there? I mean, for me, I would say I was always really secure in my subject knowledge, but I never felt that confident with behavior management. And that's where that would come up for me, for sure. And I could be told all the strategies in the world for behavior management. But actually, probably a lot of that, looking back now, is to do with my own mindset and believing that I know how to be in control of a class. I'm not kind of like on the edge and about to kind of lose control. You know, it's that mindset of knowing, like, I am the teacher in the classroom and things like that. So, oh, Emily, so many, like absolutely brilliant nuggets here absolutely fantastic listen I could talk to you for hours and hours but I think we will wrap up here so could you let people know kind of where they can find you and how they can hire you to work with them as well because I'm just thinking you know if I was still a teacher in the classroom and like you say thinking about progressing you know every well not everybody but a lot of people get to that point in their career where they do want to to move up and they do want to, you know, maybe become a head of department. And again, I get messages from people who are feeling a bit, a bit worried about that and they want a bit of help and coaching with, you know, how to do interviews. I mean, you see it on social media quite a lot of like, oh, I've got an interview for head of department. I don't know what to do. So yeah, there's so many people out there who could really, really benefit from everything that you're doing. So yeah, so let us know where we can find you and how people can work with you. I think what you just said is really important. So the people I work with are either kind of looking at progressing or want to be, I think being a leader in your classroom is okay as well. So for some people, it it really is about being the best teacher they can possibly be. And and like you say, getting rid of that self-doubt to really make sure every area of their classroom they're teaching, they feel really fulfilled with. So so yeah, so most of my work, my main point of contact really is Instagram. So I am at Emily Armstrong Education. I post loads of bits and pieces on there. As you know, I'm really passionate about all of this. So there's lots and lots of resources and freebies and things on there. I do one-to-one mentoring and that's all available. The contact details are on there as well. And I've started doing some group uh, memberships as well. So something to really keep an eye out for because I I think that's going to be where I'm moving into over the next year or so as well. Yeah, it's definitely a way of helping more people and reaching more people for sure definitely Absolutely. so yeah I will put a link to your Instagram in the show notes Thank so you. that people can just click on that and they can connect with you there because yeah and uh, your the content that you share on Instagram is so good I mean that was one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you as well and talk to you because I was just like this woman's talking about some amazing stuff and yeah the content that you share on there is so good and really really good so really really appreciated and thank you so much for uh, for staying up so late <laughs> <laughs> for, for an early bird um, and chatting to me this evening. And um, yeah, it's been really great to talk to you. So thanks so much. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Kate Languages podcast. If you did, please think about leaving me a five-star review and you can also tag me on social media to let me know you've been listening and let me know your thoughts on the episode. Also, don't forget to subscribe so the next episode of the Kate Languages podcast can be delivered straight to your device as soon as it's released. But until then, auf Wiedersehen, au revoir, adios, bye. Hi, how are you?
I'm really well, thank you. How are you? Oh, sorry, sorry. That's brilliant. That's a brilliant start. Okay, so sorry. Do you know, I wasn't looking at the screen because I was, <laughs> I was looking at my own estate. Right, start again. Start again. It's always good to break the ice like that, isn't it? <laughs>